When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. This is Elizabeth Cronin with the New Books Network. And today I am talking to Dr. Rebecca Ray about her latest book, Small Habits for a Big Life. Glad you could be here today. Thanks for having me, Elizabeth. So this is your latest book that we're going to talk about today, um, Small Habits for a Big Life. But you've written a bunch of books and you have a very interesting professional story. So I thought maybe we could start there. Sure. Um, I have written a lot of books <laughs> and that wasn't planned. If we're talking about stories, this is my entire unplanned story. In fact, the only the only part of it I did plan, I think, is to become a psychologist. So um I decided I wanted to be a psychologist when I was 15. We did like a careers night at school um, when I was in grade 10. And I thought, wouldn't it be great to learn why humans do what they do? Um, so I, was, I wanted to study psychology. So straight out of school, I went straight to university. And in that first year of uni, I, I had like a very fragile sense of self-worth, um, a lot of anxiety around that time. And I had the most amazing grandfather. Um, his name was Ronnie and he was basically my best friend. He was just one of my lifelong people and he was a pilot and he had his own private aircraft and he would take me and my cousins um, flying. And he said to me one day, you know, if you can drive a car, you can fly a plane. Now, that's rubbish. Um, <laughs> that might have been true for Ronnie, um, but I I was sucked in and I was like, okay, if it's that easy, then maybe I'll do something really big, which will then take away my anxiety and help me feel confident in the world. You know, maybe this will prove something. I don't know who I was trying to prove something to, um, perhaps just myself, you know, just trying to find my place in the world. And so I did go on to fly. I got my private pilot's license and the anxiety was still there. So I went and got my commercial pilot's license because my answer was, well, maybe I just need to do more of it. <clears throat> the anxiety was still there. So I got my night flying rating, my multi-engine rating, and then I won a scholarship through an airline to do more flying training and I got my instructor rating. Um, and the anxiety was still there. I, I was still, I would drive to the airport and want to vomit on the side of the road. Um, 
not that I ever did, but the anxiety was just so high that at some point I actually had to acknowledge that flying as much as I could do it. So I never failed a flight test. I could fly really well, but it violated my non-negotiables. Like I, I really got to a point where I had to acknowledge that it was making me unwell because I was constantly forcing myself to do something so outside my zone of genius on a daily basis. So like I said, it might've been easy for Ronnie to go from driving a car to flying a plane, but I write words and I'm comfortable in conversation with people sitting at the same desk, doing the same thing each day. And the only thing that changes is in my brain. Um, With flying, everything changes every single day. And it's maths and numbers and visuospatial skills. And that is not me. I mean, Elizabeth, you're talking to a person who has not done a parallel park since my driving test, right? So um, it's, I just got to the point where I was like, I'm done. I can't do this as a job. It's not going to work. And so I returned to psychology and um, did honours and then went on and got my professional doctorate. And I found my feet, right? I found this zone where I was just exceptionally good at this work and uh, I had planned at that point that I would be doing clinical practice until I was 70. You know, I would do that for the rest of my life. Um, I primarily worked with police and emergency services personnel and uh, defence force um, personnel who were both current serving and retired treating PTSD. So I did lots of trauma stuff as well as bread and butter anxiety um, and depression. And it got to the point where, again, I don't know who I was trying to prove anything to, but I just got to the point where I just would never say no to a referral. I didn't want to let my referrals down. I just worked so much that I got really burnt out about 35 years earlier than I had planned. Um, And I spent about five years um, trying to undo the burnout so that I could keep going with clinical practice. So I reduced my hours. I reduced my days. I reduced, um, I took more holidays. I changed, uh, like I closed my books. I didn't take on new clients. I did all this kind of practical and mental gymnastics to try to fix it. Um, And unfortunately the burnout ended up making the decision for me. I had to walk away, um, which still breaks my heart to this day. But if it didn't happen, I wouldn't be where I was. So I had to walk away from a full book of clients, um, most of whom I adored working with, because I got to the point where I could just kind of not take on people (laughs) who I didn't want to work with. And so I got to the point where I was left with this decision about how I was going to pay my bills. Like how, how, how do you shut down an entire career that you've, I I was at uni for eight years. Like what, what do you do with that? If you're, oh, I just, it was just heartbreaking. I had to walk away. I had to deal with my grief around it and deal with this sense of failure and shame that I had around it and then work out what the heck am I going to do with my life if I can't do what I've always done? Um, And so I made a decision then that maybe I would try this online thing. Um, 
And I say that very vaguely because it was vague. I was someone that didn't even have a Facebook profile. I loathe social media, right? I kind of still do, but um, I thought, well, maybe I can take everything that I've learned and try to put it out to a larger audience so that people can access this information in a way that doesn't cost them the same price as therapy. Um, you know, at least psychoeducation and at least perhaps courses that could help people. I knew nothing about selling online. I knew nothing about building a profile online, um, you know, a brand, an audience, all of that stuff. So I just accidentally, well, not accidentally, I jumped in because I felt like, what else am I going to do? And then I did it. I just like worked it out along the way. And um, I accidentally got published. So as a result of that, I got, I had someone DM me on Instagram. Would you believe I actually thought it was spam. So she messaged me and she said she had a really unusual name. And, um, she said, Oh, we love your work, Rebecca. Um, I'm from this ex publishing house. Would you like to write a book? And I had written when I was a little kid, I loved writing, um, but, you know, writing's not a real job. You can't just be an author. You Like, that's for other people. It's not for me. And so I said, well, yeah, I'd love to write a book. And then I went to my wife, Nissa, and I went, check this out. This, out. this must be spam because people don't get asked if they want to write a book. Like, you have to go and find a publisher. But no, it was real. She rang me from New York and um, my first book was published uh, 18 months later. And I now, as I mentioned just before we started recording, I've just delivered the manuscript for my sixth book that will be out in June. And so now I'm sitting in this place, this is a really long story, sorry, but I'm sitting in this place where I do, I do, I get to do psychology in a way that feels like I don't have a job. So I love what I do on a daily basis so much that I don't wake up and go, what do I have to do for work today? You know, like it's, oh, I just, I still can't believe it. I can't believe that I get to work from home with my dogs around me and I get to choose what projects I take on. And the hardest part of my entire working life is when I've got a deadline. That's it. A deadline that I asked for <laughs> and a deadline that I set. <laughs> um, and a deadline yeah. that, and a deadline that, brings forth another book you know something Absolutely. else yeah the best the best thing about this is as much as I said I don't like social media and I really don't because of how dependent we are on it but what it does give is it gives me direct access to the people that need my work and we have a, a relationship that I cherish because it helps me to know what they need so I can make sure that my work is directed towards where they're at. But it also means that I actually get to see my work make a difference without having to do the clinical work that ended up burning me out. So it's like making this leap to still using the knowledge and the wisdom that I developed over many years and um, much effort, but to be able to allow people to access it in such a way that they don't necessarily need to afford therapy because sometimes therapy can be a, very much a privilege. Um, and 
it can reach them at a time in their life when they need it, you know, because they're walking through a shop and they see a title of a book and go, oh, that sounds like it's something that I need right now. So long story short, I now write books, obviously. Um, I sell courses online. I mentor um, other business owners and um, I speak, I do keynote speaking and podcasts and content creation and all that kind of stuff. And so a lot of, does a lot of your time go to putting content out through social media? And when you got the DM through Instagram, when someone said, we love what you write, were they, had they just been following the things you've been writing on Instagram? I honestly don't know because that was in the days when I first made the transition from psychologist to well, from clinical psychologists working in clinical work to a psychologist with an online profile, I did it behind a brand. So I was so scared about putting my work out online, but I didn't for so long. I developed a page called Happy Habits. And um, my first program was on psychology, positive psychology techniques called Happy Habits. And I shared other people's quotes. That's all I did on that page. And I developed it. It was back when Instagram used to grow quickly. It doesn't anymore, or at least it doesn't for me. Um, But I, on that page, I grew it really quickly to about 200,000 followers in the space of um, 18 months or so. And um, so it was based on that, that they contacted me. And I think it was because they wanted access to that level of following, um, because sometimes followings like that can be helpful because everyone's, every business is also a content creation machine now. And so publishers need content, but they also need their authors to have some kind of following already so that they can leverage that as well. So I don't, I don't really know. I don't, I'm not aware that they were following me. Um, but also I didn't stop to check who was following me at the time. It just came out of nowhere. And then after that book was published, so that was my first book called Be Happy 35. Oh, this is, I did not choose this title. Be Happy 35 Powerful Methods for Personal Growth and Wellbeing. And then after that, I started to develop the confidence to work under my own name. So on Happy Habits, I didn't even have my name in my profile for so long. I just hid. I was just paralyzed with this sense of being exposed because, you know, as psychologists, particularly in clinical work, most of the time you're sitting in a private room with one other person and that's where the work happens. And I was so comfortable in that space um, that to be exposed to potentially hundreds of thousands of people was just overwhelming. And uh, in a nutshell, I just got over myself because <laughs> I had no choice. I just knew I couldn't go back to clinical work. But I was like, well, if I if I want to make this work, I need to go all in. And so now um, I work under Dr. Rebecca Ray and, uh, yeah, a lot of, well, not a lot of my time. I mean, some of my time is spent creating content. So I'm creating free content sometimes, whether it be, uh, social media posts or whether it be podcast episodes. Um, sometimes I'm doing podcast interviews like this that is essentially free content, but it's going out to other people's audiences. Um, and then lots of the time I'm writing, <laughs> that takes up a fair bit of my time um, for different chunks of the year. So there's often, you know, 
a six-month period where uh, it's very intense getting that book to come to life. And then there'll be another 12-month period where it's editing that book and then releasing it to the world and doing media and stuff like that. Yeah, fascinating. Um, So just going back to the beginning of your story, did you ever figure out what the underlying anxiety was? I think it was low self-worth. So um, I'm a complex trauma survivor and I think I landed in adulthood, early adulthood with a very fragile sense of self-worth and therefore not really believing in my capacity to do something that would make a difference in the world or would be meaningful. I think I've always wanted to do something that felt meaningful. Um, But I'm also someone that just has a personality style, which means I don't thrive unless my non-negotiables are met. So if you ask me to do something different every single day, like I remember one of my police officers that I treated for years, he said to me, Beck, honestly, how can you come to the same office every single day and sit at this desk and then sit in your chair and talk to people all day, every day? Like that would do my head in. And I said, how can you go to work and not know whether you're going to drive down the highway and find an accident that you've got to attend to and then be attending some other domestic over here and et cetera. I said, I could not do that. Like I'm not made like that. And so um, the... I guess the level of being able to align with my non-negotiables, my personality style and my strengths in terms of where my intelligence lies has helped me to find work that feels incredibly meaningful. And then I've just done a stack of healing work in my adulthood, found really healthy love. And that has helped me to come to a place where my my self-worth is relatively solid now, as, as much as it ever can be, given that we're humans and we love approval and we like to belong, you know? And your self-worth has to include recognition and acceptance of the fact that we're all just human anyway, so that our and work so can't, imperfect. Be con- yeah, can't be contingent on being perfect or you're exactly. So exactly. You said a couple of times that you mentioned non-negotiables and you were talking yeah. about when you were a pilot, it was sort of violating um, one of the things that you now, I guess, consider. Can, what, do you, what do you mean by that? And do you want to share some of them or give an example? Yeah. So I refer to them as life non-negotiables. Um, not my term. It was actually told to me one day and I, I latched onto it because it was so perfectly descriptive of what it refers to, which is essentially the things that you need in your life on a daily basis to help you thrive. That's the way I perceive it. Um, How you align with your values, but also what that looks like. So for me, um, one of my non-negotiables is routine um, and that can do other people's heads in. Um, So I come to the same desk, the same computer at the same time each day. Um, I often eat the same things. You know, I have the, I do the same thing in the afternoon with my dogs. Like it it all looks very, I guess to some people it might look rigid, but it's, I actually really enjoy it because I have such a vibrant internal world that I don't need a lot to change around me because I'm too too busy dealing with my head Um, and all the creativity that I do and all the 
everything that comes out happens from all the work that happens in my head. So routine is one of my non-negotiables. Um, early bedtime is another one. So if I go to bed late, um, for instance, I got invited to somebody's book launch um, in a couple of weeks' time. The book launch is like from, I don't know, 7 until, I don't know, 10 or 11 or something like that. I won't be going because at seven o'clock at night, I'm getting ready to put my toddler to bed. And after that, I go to bed not long after at about eight or eight 30. And if I don't do those things, I actually feel crappy the next day. So physically I actually suffer. Um, and there's a whole series of things like that in my life that I've just learned now things that I used to be really embarrassed by like especially as a young person when all my friends were going out clubbing and I could think of nothing worse than being trapped in a building where people were sweaty and up against each other and it was loud and dark and I couldn't potentially get out of there and go home at 8 30 at night I just could think of nothing worse than that and so now I essentially am like a 75 year old nana in a 43 year old's body and I love it um, and that's how I live my life. I, I work from home. It allows me to have full control over my workday. Whereas if you ask me to go and be a pilot, almost every one of my non-negotiables is violated by doing that. Oh, and also the type of work that I do on a daily basis now, um, all of it appeals to my zone of genius. So I generally don't I don't do work that doesn't fall into those categories. And I do get asked to. So I get, you know, people think that because you're a psychologist, you can speak on anything. <laughs> I don't know why people think that, but it must be like doctors as well. You know, like you go up to an oncologist and you say, well, what about this skin condition on my toe? And the oncologist goes, what? That's not my area, you know? Same with us. So um, I'm very clear about what I will and won't speak on. And um, yeah, it just really helps me to, stay in a state of alignment, I guess. It's interesting because if someone looks at your books, though, it does look like you can speak on just about anything. You've written <laughs> about being happy. You've written about setting boundaries. You've written <clears throat> about one of my favorites is the art of self-kindness. And as a fellow psychologist, I see the connection between your subjects and how, you know, they're, they're all kind of related to one another. But for most people, they're going to see, yeah, you you write on a lot of different things. Um, I think you you touch on spirituality a little bit when you, uh, the universe listens to brave and all of that. Yeah. So it does, it is a sort of, it's not like you just address one thing. I I address one, thre- one thing via different avenues. What's and the that one, thing? The, that one thing is essentially self-worth. So I am constantly writing about helping people to um, accept themselves from a place of self-kindness and self-compassion, but also not cop out, to be able to step forward into realising their potential, to relentlessly believing in their own potential. So all of those topics are grounded in how can we accept our imperfect selves compassionately and still believe that we can grow and improve and reach our potential in ways that align with who we want to be? Um, whether that be via Be Happy, which, again, not my title, um, 
that book is essentially a collection of my favorite techniques as a psychologist that I used to teach clients. That's all it is. Like across different areas, I'm like, this technique is amazing. You need to know about this and this and this and this. And then the Universe Listens to Brave is a book on courage, which is very much about accepting the discomfort that we need to be able to accept if we're going to grow. You don't have to accept just any discomfort, but you do need to be able to accept the discomfort of pushing outside your comfort zone if you want to be able to step forward into a wider, more expansive existence than the art of self-kindness is. But how can you have compassion for yourself while you do that? Because it's very hard. Um, And because we often carry loads that um, are difficult, are heavy, and need to be um, processed in order for us to be able to move forward. And then Setting Boundaries was the book that I wanted to write on self-worth, but in a way that pleased my publisher. So <laughs> my publisher said, what do you want to write next? And I said, I want to write a book on self-worth. And she goes, yeah, nah, um, that's not really going to sell. It's too vague. Can you write a book on boundaries? And I said, no, I don't want to write about boundaries. Um, she's like, well, do you want a contract or not? Um, so I was like, oh, okay. Um, no, she wasn't that blunt, but that's essentially what it boiled down to. And then when I realized, so I kind of sat with the topic, the topic for a while and I was like, hold on a second, boundaries are actually the language of self-worth. That's how we communicate to the rest of the world, our worthiness. And once I realized that, bang, we were off. So I wrote Setting Boundaries. And then um, Small Habits for a Big Life is about the ways we trip ourselves up when we're trying to reach our potential. So small habits for a big life is essentially about self-sabotage. And that came as a result of um, my following, really. I put out a course called Radical Courage, helping people to overcome fear. And during that course, I had so many people say, okay, I get this. I love it. And I know what to do, but I'm not doing it. And I was like, yeah. Okay. Well, clearly we need to fill that gap. Then we need to look at the gap that is um, stopping you from actually crossing that chasm. And that gap was self-sabotage. The ways that we avoid discomfort and tie ourselves up into knots because we're seeking um, immediate relief in the present moment, rather than looking at what our future self needs us to be able to do. So it's all, it's all grounded in the same, uh, in the same roots of it's bloody hard to be human. My philosophy is it's bloody hard to be human. But if we can find a sense of uh, acceptance of ourselves and if we can understand that we have so much of value just for existing and for who we are and then step forward and trust ourselves to create something meaningful in our lives, then the possibility is what turns me on. And that's what I want all of my books to be able to speak to is see this hard bit of your life, whether it's self-sabotage or whether it's boundaries or whether it's beating up on yourself, um, whatever it is, on the other side of that, if you have the right techniques, is you being able to embrace possibility. So what do you think, well, I guess I just wonder if you could say more about self-sabotage, what that, <clears throat> what that means or how that might look up, you know, show up yeah. for something. Yeah. Self-sabotage in its simplest definition is anything we do that gets in the way of us doing what we want or need to be doing. 
Now, everyone avoids, right? Every single human being on the face of the planet has avoidance strategies that we partake in um, every now and again to be able to avoid some discomfort, something that we don't particularly want to do. But it turns into self-sabotage when those behaviours have become so much of our daily routine that they're actually pushing us further away from who we want to be. So I'm not talking about the odd time that you might procrastinate clean, you know, (laughs) you've got a report to write and all of a sudden the house has never been cleaner, Um, but eventually the report gets written. I'm talking about the behaviours that happen so often that we're talking months or years of becoming disconnected from who you are or disconnected from your goals that represent who you want to be. What's an example of that? So um, I had someone come and uh, do one of my mentoring courses and she'd been talking about wanting to write a book for six years, I think. Um, And throughout that time, her book was notes on her her phone, um, just ideas. It was uh, like three-page Word document on her computer And every time she sat down to write that book, there was something else that was more important to do, whether it be dealing with one of her kidlets or um, there was a work project that she had to focus on or whatever it is, there was always an excuse that came in to get in the way. Um, And so what we were looking at was actually what's behind that that stops her from writing the book. Because one of the things that it's really important to look at when it comes to self-sabotage is that sometimes it's not self-sabotage. Sometimes it's just that you don't want to do the thing. Like if you if you say you want to write a book, but you decide you actually don't want to write a book, don't write one. Like, like that's you don't not, have to fly a plane just because you've got you, your pilot's license. You don't. You don't. You don't have to. You also don't need to get like 4,000 other ratings um, right. when you've decided that you don't want to write yes. fly said plane plane. But if you, let's say you you have a goal and then you decide that that goal belongs to someone else or it's actually not something that's aligned for you, that's not self-sabotage. That's like proper redirection that you should do um, to become back into alignment. But for her, it really was important to write a book. And so we were looking at the aspects of self-sabotage that actually sit below the, the behaviour because human beings don't do anything for no reason. Um, and when it comes to self-sabotage, normally there's a huge payoff. So we were actually looking at how helpful the self-sabotage was. It helped her to avoid the fear, avoid the boredom of writing, because writing a book can be boring. Like it's it's very laborious and having to sit there and capture your brain on a day when your brain decides to work and be creative, it can be really hard. And so the process of that was allowing us to come back to why the goal was important and then to unravel the behaviours that she was doing to um, shift away from the discomfort that had to be accepted to be able to get the book written. Yeah, I think it's, um, I think it's interesting. And I think something that in the, in your book, Small Habits for a Big Life, you address really well is that when we are on our default mode and we're we're using the same strategies to avoid things that can in fact actually be sabotaging us 
that's so that's easy, even if it's uncomfortable or unpleasant, it's easy and familiar. And you you yeah. talk a lot. And I, I think it's a really good read for anybody who feels like they're, they're, they're just almost where they want to be, but they, they can't quite get there. Um, yeah. One of my favorite things was what, when you were talking about um, your willpower bucket and ways yeah. you can fill your willpower bucket, because it's really hard to make change. And I think it's, it's so hard. People think, it's too hard. And then they yes. get to this place with like, just too hard. And then they, they give up and giving up is a way of sabotaging yourself too. Yeah, it is. But it is too hard. Also, if you set the goal um, too high, it will be too hard. Absolutely. And it is too hard. If you decide that you're going to make change in a season of your life, where making such a dramatic change is actually overwhelming for your emotional brain. So I think sometimes what happens is we take advantage of times where we've felt motivated or we look back on times in our life and we compare ourselves from now to then and think, well, I was able to do it back then, so why can't I do it now? So we then set the goal to be massively high without taking into account the daily demands that we have in our life today. Um and we expect that we should be able to get there. And then by day three, when we've fallen off the wagon, we decide that we're defective, that we'll never be able to change. And then it creates this cycle of demotivation. But the willpower bucket is super important because it accounts for those daily demands. Um, if you don't, if you start at the beginning of the day with a bucket of willpower that's as full as it's going to get, um, and then you force yourself to go out in the world and make a million different difficult decisions. You've got too many choices. Your brain has to do all this work just to get through that part of the project. And then you're multitasking. You're trying to manage multiple things at once. You're stressed because your relationship with your partner is not going too well. And you don't eat, you don't drink water, and you sit at your desk for eight hours and you don't move. All of those things drain your willpower bucket so quickly that anything left over for the change process is essentially null and void. So the willpower bucket is like, how can I actually appeal to my battery so that making the change, sorry, so that there's charge in my battery to make the change? Because if you think about it, your battery is used just on any given day doing what you've got to do. You've got to get up. You've got to, you know, make breakfast for the family. You've got to get your child off to school. You've got to do your daily work tasks. And by the end of that, you might be exhausted. Then if you consider that you're also asking yourself to introduce a new exercise plan, that's a lot for brains. It's a lot to then say, and we're going to do this as well. So instead I, I talk about the willpower bucket in terms of how can we make this as easy as possible? We can make it easy. We can charge your battery to its fullest charge by making sure that stress is as low as it can be. You've slept well, you're hydrating and making sure that you're eating food that is nourishing your system. And then that you do one thing at a time. So no multitasking, stick with single, single tasking, and then make sure that you don't have to make too many decisions to go and do the exercise. And by that, I mean, um, you can remove decisions if you just make sure that your clothes are out the night before. 
You don't need to wake up at five o'clock in the morning and go, where are my undies? Oh my God, where's my crop top? Where's my socks? Where, who put my shoes? Where are they? I can only find one of them. That's decision-making. And when you drain your um, brain, having to make all those little decisions, it makes going for a walk before that walk is a habit super, super hard for your brain. If you make those decisions the night before, you get your clothes out, your water bottles there, your car keys there, um, so that all you have to do is get up and get dressed and get in, um, go out and go for your walk, all of a sudden those decisions have been removed. So the willpower bucket talks about how can we facilitate our bodies and our brains in such a way that this change is acceptable. It's fascinating. I think it's fascinating. And I think the um, other thing that you mentioned that was really hit home with me was that there's also little things along the way that you can do to take care of yourself. And it kind of goes with your, you know, the, the part of self-kindness and the other themes you've, you've talked about in your other books, just that like taking time to cross something off your list or check the box when you finish it and just giving yourself encouragement, recognizing when you've been successful, um, all yeah, of yeah. that, I think is so, so helpful. So I'm just curious now with the person you worked with individually that wanted to write, were you able to find some things like that with her to, to break down and make the, make her goals more attainable? Was she able to? Yeah. So that? the first thing we did was we, she has a chronic health condition. So we set up that writing didn't have to happen every day. Sometimes people that are new to writing or um, I guess new to authorship, so they might not be new to writing, they might write blog posts, for example, but they've never actually tackled a whole book. They come to the task um, with some assumptions <laughs> and one of those assumptions is if I'm a real writer, I need to write every single day, you know. It's so common. No, you don't. Um, just a heads up, I don't write unless I'm being paid. So <laughs> when I'm not writing a book, um, the most I, you'll get out of me is an Instagram caption. And even then I am dragging my feet to write it. You know, like I have never been someone that writes every single day. If I did that, writing to me would become a job and I would hate it. So um, for her, what we looked at, it, she actually loves writing. She's She's a lucky writer who really enjoys writing. I enjoy the outcome. I don't enjoy the process, mainly because I'm super lazy. Let's be honest. Um, book writing is hard. And so instead of setting up this expectation that to be a writer, she needed to write every single day, we uh, connected her with her body to be able to go, is today in my body a writing day or not? Because some days her pain levels were too high and sitting at a desk to write was actually not only almost impossible physically, but there's not there's only so much you can create if you've got that pain to begin with. Pain actually really drains the willpower bucket. So we gave her permission to be able to not write every single day. And then she developed some strategies herself that really helped with those dopamine hits. So... Um, the dopamine hits to make it feel good and to make it feel like she was motivated and getting the job done, she would go outside of her home to write. So she had a friend who owned a little um, cafe who had like a, a 
back area that she could go and ride in. She would drive to that person's shop and go and ride in this beautiful little kind of nook in the back of the shop. And then that was like going to her office. She would do it for a few hours, have a yummy meal and then go home. Yeah, it's interesting because I, you were talking earlier about wanting to write so you could get more of your work out there to more people that yeah. maybe couldn't access individual therapy. There, there's an interesting thing that I find because I interview so many people on um, self-help books or spirituality and things like that. And I do think though, it helps to have a person, whether it's a, a therapist or a mentor um, or somebody, a trusted person, a trusted colleague, because in having conversation and talking things through, it seems like that's gives us more insight into ourselves. It does. And often other people can see us better than we can see ourselves. I think so. That's the real benefit of having an outsider is that they can, they can also often give you permission that you won't give yourself. So because I'd published a book and I said out loud, I do not write every day. You do not have to write every day to get this book written. It, the light bulb for her was like, oh, my goodness, this, this concept is so freeing. So she went from not writing at all because she wasn't doing it perfectly to then giving herself permission to show up when she was physically able And I think sometimes the relationship that you're referring to, whether it be a mentor or a colleague or just someone that feels psychologically safe so that we can share where we're at vulnerably vulnerably, and then say, I'm having a tough time with this, when they can come back to you and say, you know what, Um, this is actually, you know, if you looked at it from this perspective, then maybe it might feel different. It's really, really powerful. I I don't think that we should ever underestimate it. I think you're right. Um, my work gets done by having those colleagues in my life, you know, my inner circle where I can go to people and go, oh, my God, this deadline is looming and I don't feel great, you know. <laughs> Speaking yeah. from personal experience quite recently. <laughs> <laughs> I think. Um, I think the other thing that, People think about sometimes when with habits is we think habits as being um, the same, like what it sounds like you're describing to me was trying to encourage this habit of checking in with herself to see how she was doing and whether or not it was going to be a good day to write that that can be a habit versus I have this habit of writing every day from 9am to four or 9am to noon or whatever. I think we think of, I I think I'm, I'm realizing, I think of habits as being like, you do the same thing every day, the same time in the same way and all that. But what you're kind of addressing is that we can develop habits in our approach to life. Yeah, exactly. You're thinking about habits the way they're advertised. <laughs> so habits are advertised as like a running chain of ticks on a calendar. And if you miss one day of doing the thing, then you've messed up the entire chain. That's how Western society advertises habits to us. They advertise them from a place of uh, almost superiority. You know, these people that have got these daily habits down are superior to the rest of us that aren't quite so consistent. 
Um, and also that habits must come from a place of force, that we must show up and do the thing and have discipline. Now, I'm a firm believer that discipline is a fantastic thing. It's such an amazing um I guess, way of being to cultivate. But if it doesn't come with self-compassion and with self-kindness so that you're able to read your body and read your mind in such a way that you're not backing yourself into a corner, then as far as I'm concerned, you're essentially just being a drill sergeant to yourself. And the person that's going to suffer from that is you because our relationship with ourselves is present 100% of the time, every single day, we're with ourselves for the rest of our life. And if you're going to treat yourself like that, you're only going to get so far. Now, the caveat to this is there is some kind of personality types out there, the Navy SEAL kind of personality types, the extreme personality types who respond really quite well to rules like that. Um, Many of my defense force personnel and even police Uh, responded to these are the rules and I have to follow the rules. Um, And if I do so, then they get this huge dopamine hit by pushing themselves further and further. But for most of us everyday people, just trying to do something meaningful along with running the life admin of our lives, um, that approach is far too forceful to be able to see anything good come of it. So I'm always in a place where I'm trying to encourage people to create a habit of aligning with where they're at on the on a daily basis to do the things consistently that are important to them. Now, consistency, Elizabeth, might mean walking three times a week, but not seven. Do you know what I mean? Like it's it's the it's what aligns for where you're at on that particular day. And I guess the mental line that people need to then find for themselves is, well, where's the line between being compassionate and copping out? Um, And I get asked that question a lot. Like if I'm going to be kind to myself, what happens if I end up being so kind that, you know, eating a packet of Doritos on the couch every night while watching Netflix is what I end up doing rather than going for the walk? And my answer to that is always that, Once we go for the walk, the dopamine hit that we get from that is far greater than we do from any behavior where we're copping out. And so all you need to do is check in with um, your body. Did you actually need to lie on the couch? Because sometimes we do. I certainly do. Sometimes I just need to watch some kind of murder documentary and be wrapped up in a blanket on the couch like a burrito, not talking to anyone. But other times my body needs to move because I sit far too long when I'm writing a book. You know the difference as long as you're in touch with yourself. For people that are getting confused, it's because probably they've spent a long time disconnected from who they want to be and therefore they're not quite sure if they can trust their intuition. And that self-trust builds up over time. Brains love evidence. So go and do the small steps of the bigger habit and you start to build that evidence for your brain that you can do the thing. I love that. I think you've kind of brought us full circle now that we're at at about the end here, because what you're describing is in a way that this habit of trying to use discipline to force something like, like you were the way you were approaching being a pilot, you know, just taking for further and further, but it, you weren't at that point checking in with yourself because you were actually feel, feeling physically ill. So it's so it's really interesting. So 
you know, we might even say one of the habits that's really valuable. Um, and again, this is a common theme throughout your books is just this habit of caring for yourself. And, yeah. you know, and that if you're in order to feel a level of self-worth, you have to have, you have to have a level of respect for yourself and care for yourself and pay a certain amount of attention to yourself. Exactly. And that care means that you can re- reach your potential to heights that you otherwise wouldn't imagine. I think that's the that's the key is people think, but I want to do this really big thing or I really want to go and push myself and see how far I can go. Great, but you'll be able to go even further if you actually look after yourself along the way. And if you treat yourself as you would a friend, if you're there whipping yourself into shape, you're only going to burn out before you even get to the start line. That's such an important message. And I really appreciate you taking time to talk with us tonight and to share your wisdom. And before I let you go, though, will you give us a little hint about the the next book? Did you want to say just a word or two? So the next book, um, all I can say is the next book that's released in June. I'm not sure when the US date will be um, that it will come out, but um, it's on difficult people. So those people in your life that just make you shake your head and think, why are my boundaries not working here? That is the book that you need. So another, you're going, adding another layer to the self-worth. Like Exactly. Yeah. How do we deal with people who shake our sense of self-worth? Even if you've done lots of healing and lots of work on yourself, there'll be that one person that makes you walk away and go, hold on a second. Is there something wrong with me? Hold on a second. Was that my fault? What do we do then? We do then. Oh, well, I'm going to be looking for that book. <laughs> e- eager to read it. Not, not that Thank I have difficult so people in my life, but just. just <laughs> we do. We, we all have those moments, even if it's just yeah, an encounter do. with a stranger, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. It's really been a pleasure to connect with you. Thanks for having me, Elizabeth.